When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. This is Jay. It's Moses Black. And you are listening to TV Confidential with one of my best friends. Ed Robertson Law author guest Simon Napier Bell. Simon Napier Bell is the director of The Real George Michael. Uh, new documentary available for viewing on demand on Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, many other platforms across the United States and Canada. Calendar year 2023, George would have been 60. It's a wonderful film. As we said in our open, it takes you back to the early days of music television and it gives true insight into the person behind the performer, the person behind the personality, the real George Michael, available viewing on demand on all major platforms. Touched on this in in some of my responses earlier, Simon. For most of the film, I just came away just truly amazed and with admiration for his talent, for his skill, for his vision, for his ability to play three-dimensional chess, so to speak, you know, and just see things. And, and I'm not just talking about the music he wrote as a teenager that transcended his physical age, but just his, his knowledge of how the industry worked more than a, a lot of other people. But, but towards the end of the film, particularly there's a, there's a clip you played near the end, and I forget who he said this to, but he said, and this, and this was a comment he made toward the end of his life, where he said that he hadn't felt truly happy since he was age 22, which is before everything blew up. And I couldn't help but feel sad when I watched that. What are are your thoughts on that? Well, he he didn't say that, actually. What he said is he hadn't been happy with fame. Oh, okay, with fame. I'm sorry. And so he'd been happy a lot of the time uh, when he got away from you know, being that famous person in the public eye. He he was happy when he was with his friends, when he was secreted away in his house, when he was with Kenny Goss at home, uh, when he was with his dogs. He, he found a lot of happiness, but he was definitely a classical artist temperament. He was totally up and down. He was bipolar for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he would he would be happy one minute and, and incredibly upset the next minute. I, all of us are ups and downs. I mean, with any day, too. You know, anyone who says, have you had a good day? If you really think through it, you're going to think of good and bad things in each day. But his ups and downs, as many artists are, you mentioned Frank Sinatra earlier, who's incredibly similar, have enormous ups and enormous downs. You know, so Frank Sinatra was famous for an angry moment, smashing a man through a plate glass window and nearly killing him. And 20 minutes later, sitting in the hospital with him, begging the surgeons to repair him and crying. I mean, the people have these up and down emotions. I manage Sinead O'Connor, too, who has even greater swings of up and down. So George 
was often happy, but he wasn't happy with fame. And of course, this was the point I made earlier that when you're 18, 19, 20, you think, oh, I'm going to be famous and rich. And I'm going to travel the world and people will love me and all the girls or boys will throw themselves at me. And then you find that you don't want you don't want people throwing themselves at you. You want to be able to go out and look for someone you like. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be swamped everywhere you go with people running up and saying, I love you, I love you. You want to be able to just go out and go for a walk. And, uh, and Andrew, for instance, who, when Wham finished, gracefully gave way and let George Goffin have a solo career, was an incredibly well-balanced, perceptive person. He really enjoyed two years of being famous and learning what it was all about, and all the benefits and as the benefits began to diminish and the oppression of being famous crept up on him, he thought, well, if George wants to finish, this is fine. You know, I've, I've had my fun, I've made the money, and George wants to go on doing it. God knows why. And nearly everyone who's had moments of fame and come out of it will tell you the same thing. Very few famous music stars, and there are a few, um, have gone through this and managed to get out of it. They, you know, as I say, they're, they're, they're mentally damaged people, and sometimes... And it's usually when they meet someone who they fall in love with who really gives them a long-term relationship, a, a solid for the whole of their lives. They managed to, to climb out of it and find what they needed from the general public in one person. And then they can live a much more sane, well-balanced life. And the first thing they try to do when, when they achieve that is to get rid of fame, to, to quieten it down, to, to be more on the sidelines or behind the scenes. And a few manage it. It is very few. Uh, and George certainly didn't manage that. He hated everything to do with fame, and if it wasn't there, he rushed to get more of it. You know, <laughs> it was good. it was like being a heroin addict. You yeah. you every day you wake up and say I'll never take it again, and by seven o'clock in the evening you can't wait for the man to come to give it to you. Yeah, because it's yeah, even with alcohol it can be with any addictive drug, and fame is an addictive drug without any doubt. And George would you know these things he did which which um, got him enormous attention. It's discussed in the film, like when he, he went on television and told, you know, sitting in the dressing room in Barcelona, but before going on stage during his one of his tours, a smoking marijuana for the cameras, for the television cameras, there in front of them. Uh, he knew the next day that was going to be the front page of every newspaper. He wanted that publicity. And then he hated himself for wanting that publicity. And this is what nearly all artists do. The Real George Michael, available now for viewing on demand, Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, many other platforms across the United States and Canada. In music, they say a hit's a hit, you know it when you hear it. As a producer, what sort of things do you look for when you listen to a song? The interesting thing about that is George was a producer as well as a singer, mm -hmm. and he is virtually the only artist that I, I know Prince has done it too but there are almost no artists and have never been any artists who could produce themselves better than anyone else could produce them and he had this extraordinary ability to stand back from his voice and his writing and become the producer and knew the exact exact maximum he could he could exploit his voice and get the best of it and where to stop and, and so his records are fantastically well produced and he produced them and that's almost a separate process from originally conceiving the song and writing them so whatever it is which i or anyone else's producer has which lets you know what a hit record is he had too um and that's i i, I couldn't think of it I, prince did it he didn't do it on all his records george did it 
really from Careless Whisper onwards, from that record onwards, he never had a producer again. He wanted to produce and needed to produce himself. Other producers would push his voice a little bit further than he knew it could go. But what you look for, really, you know, a hit song is an extraordinary mix of things, but nearly every major hit is a song like a person uh, who you feel comfortable with immediately. And that means that within that hit song, which has to be a new song, um, there are so many elements of something you've heard before that it's almost as if you know it when you first hear it. Because the industry has this one huge conundrum. The music industry makes money from taking unknown songs and making them popular. And how do you get people to listen to an unknown song they don't want to? They want to listen to a song they know. And the way you do that is you make the song so instantly familiar, they almost think they know it. And then they, oh, no, I don't know this. What is it? I like this. So they have to be hooked by it almost at once. And yet it can't be so simplistic that when they hear it the second time, they're so on board with that. What a load of rubbish. Very clever trick. And every great song has that. It has so many elements of the past in it that you can't stop listening and so many new elements that you can't stop listening in the future. And George had that to perfection, but any producer knows that that's what you're looking for. Let me ask you a similar question. In some cases, an artist may do a cover, a performance of a song or renditions of a song that somebody else did before them. I mean, Elvis did a cover of You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, which is the song you wrote for Dusty Springfield. When do you know or when do you think it might be a good idea for someone to cover a George Michael song or, a jo- or for George Michael to cover, not that he did this, but for George Michael to cover, say, an Elvis song? Okay, well, it's very interesting. When Elvis covered Dusty's song, it was amazing. I loved it. A lot of people didn't like it. I loved his version because Dusty Springfield sang that song in a very feminine, teenage, heartbreak way. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I can't live without you type of way. And Elvis turned it into a very masculine butch. Uh, you know, the truck driver and his girlfriend keeps saying... Oh, I don't want to talk about love. You don't have to say love me. Get that out of the way. Look, I love you. That's yeah. enough. You don't, I don't have to talk about love. Took it at a faster tempo and almost gabbled it out. And it was wonderfully masculine. I mean, it, it, it didn't have that heartbreak romance in it. And um, that was very, very clever. And so that, to me, made it a great cover version. Some cover versions are exact copies of the original. Well, that's just, you know, somebody thinks it's time people heard the song again. I might get away with just doing it the same way. But the best ones have some subtle difference, which takes it to a new place. George, I've never heard a cover version of any one of his songs which was any good at all. And that's extraordinary. That's because he produced his own songs. Yeah. He ha- he puts into his songs some element which so much requires him to be the person telling the story that it doesn't feel genuine if somebody else tells it. Last Christmas is probably the most covered of all his songs. I've never heard anything which sounded anything except like, you know, one of those cheap Woolworth records, which you... Woolworth, does anyone know what Woolworth is? I do. <laughs> one of those cheap 23-track Filipino cover version yeah. records. You know, but um, even the great artists doing it, they don't catch it. There's something it had to be from him. Careless Whisper, that's also equally covered. People have tried doing it different ways, turning a bit of dance. I mean, you think of watching you. What, what's this, is it, what was Sting's song with police? Is it called Everything She Wants? Is it called Watching You? Um, I think that I'll I be, think that is yes. I'll be watching. Well, I I'll be watching you every, yeah, every every step you make. Yeah. Every, every step you make by the police. I thought that was the same. It could never ever 
be covered. It was impossible because there was something in that song which made it un- you could never match it. It was just you having a bit of fun singing in the pub, even if you were a huge star. You know, it wasn't a coverable song. But then uh, P. Diddy did it, did it, and he did it in a way which actually did add to the song and make it listenable a second time uh, on the same level. Very clever trick. George had that. George did Rufus's Wayne, Rufus Wainwright's Going to a Town. And I think George, Rufus, well, Rufus Wainwright is a brilliant singer and a fantastic performer. And I've seen Rufus perform Going to a Town live, and it's magnetic. But if you're talking about just listening to it as a record, I think George sang it better or made the better record. When I first said, the first time I ever heard that song was George singing it. I didn't know it wasn't his song. I thought it was his new song. I thought, God, another utterly brilliant song by George. And he had this ability to take other people's songs and make them sound absolutely as if they were his own. Not everyone. Some of his cover versions sounded like cover versions, as simple as that. Well sung, beautiful version, but actually I preferred the original. Or his, however good it was, didn't quite have that little nuance that the original voice had. But many times his cover versions were completely unique and you felt they were his song. One of those songs which George said utterly brilliantly was Letter Down Easy, mm-hmm. which was written by Terence Trent Darby and was a hit for him. Uh, and again, George George took that song and, and most young people who'd never heard the original thought it was a George Michael song. I thought it was, you know, why, why, why didn't he put it out as a song? Why wasn't it one of his huge hits, they asked me. And when I told them, because it really was a, 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 somebody else's song, it's a cover version, they couldn't believe it because it felt so innately George the way it was sung and projected. And that's, that is a great singer. But of course, other singers had that ability. We talked about Frank Sinatra before. Frank Sinatra could take songs other people had sung, sung, had been sung by other people 30, 40, 50 times. And you'd hear Frank Sinatra's and you say, that has to be the definitive version. Whoever made a good version of that? And you check and you find, oh, it was written 30 years ago. 283 people have already sung that song. But now here comes Frank Sinatra and at last it's been sung like it should be sung. George had that ability too. Simon Napier-Bell is the director of The Real George Michael. Excellent documentary available now for viewing on demand. Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, many other platforms across the United States and Canada. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item. Summertime is in full swing. And if you have dry skin, you know what happens when the weather gets warmer. More visible lines and dullness. Fortunately, our friends at Ibu Beauty can help. Their super duo serum and moisturizer is all you need this summer for the perfect look. Check them out, ibubeauty.com. That's Y-I-B-U, beauty.com, or at ibubeauty on Instagram. Use customer code ibu 50 now at checkout and receive 50% off your first order. The Real George Michael is not your first documentary. What first led you into documentary filmmaking? <laughs> My father was a documentary film director. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I've I've led a life of guilt that I left the industry and went into music. I was brought up in films and, you know, when I was eight or nine years old in the school holidays, I'd be out helping his small film crew make his films. Well, helping, probably hindering, but I thought I was helping as eight-year-old kids do. And uh, I went to the film industry before I went to the music industry. But when I was 23, 24, I was working in the film industry. I, I worked with Burt Backrack. I, I created the score for What's New Pussycat, for which he'd written the music. Mm-hmm. And my future looked like the film industry. But um, the problem with the film industry is from the inception of a film, from the, from the moment a, a director or writer got the idea to make a film until it was finally made, 
and promoted was three to four years. If you if you made a bad one, you'd lost what, 10% of your entire working life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seemed to me as a, as a young person, what a hideous way to, to spend your life four, three, four years each film. Um, and then if you screw up, you, you just 10% of your life gone. You made a record, it would take you the best part of the morning, and it could be on radio that evening. That was in the 60s. You could make an album in three days and have it out the next Monday. Um, if you made a mess, that's just a week gone. <laughs> so, um, you know, as a young person, the music industry was the way to go. And then once I'd gone there, I had success, and, and um, I was laughing at the filmmakers the rest of my life. <laughs> but, bit, but, but bit by bit, this sort of guilt crept up on me. I, not guilt, not guilt to anybody else, just to myself. Yeah. I, loved, I loved films. I wanted to make films. That is really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer. I mean, I'd always wanted to be a writer, and finally, when I was 40, I wrote my first book, and I hadn't stopped, and I've had five best-selling books, and, and that's really what I, I, I like doing. No, I don't like doing it. Writing isn't fun. I like having done it, having good books well-written, which are out, mm-hmm. and I've become a good writer. I yeah. mean, there's not many things I'll say that about myself. I, whether I'm a good manager or not, I don't know. I'm a knowledgeable manager. Um, I can be impatient, um, and I'm quite a good filmmaker, but I'm a good writer, so I know I'm good at that uh, but films are what I enjoy the thing about writing is when you're doing it it's miserable you're all by yourself you're mm-hmm. tucked away mm-hmm. six seven hours a day when you make films it's fun you're with people you're talking you're communicating making films is like being at a wonderful social event mm-hmm. and there isn't a nicer way to spend your life than making films except towards the end you know when you're dealing with them with the marketeers and the promoters and the producer and Netflix who tell you you've got to change that sad ending to a happy one. You say, well, the ending, he commits suicide. Yeah. How can I make that happy? I yeah. don't know. Make it happy. You can't sell it with a sad yeah. ending. You know, um, then you hate the industry for a few minutes. But actually making the film is fun. I go back to a word I used earlier to describe the documentary films in general. It's a very, it's a fluid process in the sense that you may have an idea of the kind of film you want to make, but a lot of times the quote-unquote story arc is going to be formed through the comments of the contributors who you talk to on film. Two completely different types of documentary. My dad was a documentary maker uh, at the old school. He learned his craft before the Second World War. He was a great documentary maker, got lots of awards, but he would write the script for his documentary, and then he would make it, mm-hmm. and he would... Um, Whatever it was, it would turn out pretty much exactly like the script he'd written. He'd get the right people to talk. He'd take the right images, and they were fantastic films. In his company with him were two or three other young documentary makers, younger than him, who were making documentaries a new way. They would get an idea for a subject, and they would go out and film it for a week. And then, according to what happened when they were filming, they would edit together the documentary. There were people like Lindsay Anderson, Carol Rice, and people I knew. I mean, I was brought up with them, though. Might be one or two of my godfathers and people like that. And so innately in me was that style of filmmaking. Making a film is getting the material together, seeing what you've got, and then working out the thesis from the material you've got. And so with this film with George, I don't speak in it. I knew what I thought about George, and I thought it'd be interesting to find out what everyone else thought about him. And I didn't like all those films I'd seen about him which have made him a traditional style with a commentary, usually a very brash, noisy commentary. He didn't even talk quietly. And then George did this, and then George, George thought, well, they don't know what George thought, you know. And um, 
I, w I made a film where I found everyone I could who had worked with him, who got to know him well, who, uh, his, his, his lover, Kenny Goss, his record producer, uh, his, his video producer, and have them talk. And they talked at length. We had 45 hours of, of filmed interviews. Mm -hmm. Each person talked at least an hour, 45 people. Uh, Stevie Wonder, Rufus Wainwright, Stephen Fry. And then edited it together so it flowed from beginning to end as, as the story of George, if you like. So it went from uh, the beginning of Wham to his death. It was completely uh, cohesive and, and flows. And it's all told by the people in it talking and links together through what they say. And what they say is it really does show him in many ways which none of the individual people had seen all the complete ways. So it does link up to create something different from what any individual one of them knew. The Real George Michael available, Amazon, Tubi, Roku, Peacock, many other platforms. Simon Napier-Bell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll play more of Greg Airbar's conversation with jazz and film historian Mark Cantor. We come back on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash TV Confidential, x.com forward slash TV Confidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.